All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fucksters? Nice to what? Nice to see you. Nice to talk to you. Welcome. Hi. How are you? Everything okay? You're right there. You're strapped in. Are you being careful? Are you looking both ways? Are you are you uh, hiding with your headphones on? Are you trying to pretend like you're listening to music? Hey, hey, hey! How's work? What's going on? I'm Mark. Uh, this is my show. It's a, it's a podcast. I talk to people. Got a couple of people on today. Pretty exciting show. Interesting show. What I'm going to do in a few minutes is I'm going to talk to my old sidekick, Josh Brenner, who played Kyle in seasons one, two, and three of Marin. He was my assistant. You may also know him as Big Head on uh, Silicon Valley. And uh, he's in a movie. He's in, he's, it's a movie coming out called Welcome to Happiness with Nick Offerman and Keegan-Michael Key. I'll talk to Josh Brenner in a little bit. I'll also be talking to the playwright Stephen Karam, author of The Humans, which I saw off-Broadway but is now on Broadway. A tremendous play. This is part of a series of playwrights I seem to be having on. Maybe it's not a series. Yeah, there's more coming. Yeah. But uh, it's been interesting for me to go to theater. I, I enjoy it. It's a it's a lively and relevant art form that we need to engage in. And the humans is a great play. I'm gonna. T- I talked to him in New York in a hotel room. So that's what I'm trying to tell you. Josh Brenner and uh, Stephen Karam on the show today. I do want to get some business out of the way. Personal business about my dates coming up. The Trippany House shows have been spectacular here in Los Angeles at the Steve Allen Theater. I want to thank everyone for coming down. There are several shows coming up. You can go to wtfpod.com slash tour. I'll be at the at the Steve Allen Theater on May 31st, June 7th, June 14th, June 21st, and June 28th. These are Tuesdays. They're, I think, an $8 ticket. All the proceeds go to the theater. Uh, on July 7th, 8th, and 9th, I will be at the Spokane Comedy Club in Washington. Wow, I'm doing full runs, man. That's one, two, three, four, five shows. And then July 14th, 15th, and 16th, I will be at Wise Guys in Salt Lake City, Utah, doing the real club work. And then July 28th, 29th, and 30th, I will be at the Comedy Attic in Bloomington, Indiana, doing the club work. And then August 18, 19, and 20, I'll be at Stand Up Live in Phoenix, Arizona, doing the club work. And then September 9th, 10th, I'll be at uh, the Comedy Club in Rochester, New York. And for for God's sakes, by the end of that run, I should definitely have a new hour. Just out of necessity, so I don't lose my fucking mind. So, yeah, I mean, come to any of those shows. I hope you're enjoying Marin on IFC, which airs Wednesdays at 9 p.m. I think the fourth episode aired last night. Moving out of the rehab situation and into life. And then we get, this is phase two of season four of Marin. Uh, It was very fun, obviously, working with Sally Kellerman and challenging and exciting. uh, Working with with, uh, Michael Lerner, who, uh, who I... I am a fan of, despite the fact that uh, he's a, a very uh, challenging individual. <laughs> and I, I still love him. 
And and we we pulled an episode together out of what was a pretty chaotic few days of shooting, my friends. So enjoy that. You know, like I I don't want to complain about bullshit. Uh, but I guess it's only relative to you know what your life is like. Obviously, people have bigger problems than this. But uh, as I've told you before. I went through it. It almost became a narrative, but I just fucking detached from it. I got this new office space that I'm very happy with to do my work, to process things, to write and uh, go through books and records and letters and shit that are sent to me and have meetings down there. And AT&T, they, ha- they are- have a cell tower on, p- on top of the building that my office is in right above my my office. I didn't know this going in. I've set this up before. Now, you know, here's the deal. You know, corporations, people have their own problems with corporations. Corporations should not be treated as individuals. Corporations get away with murder, literally. I hope that what I'm talking about right now is not going to put me on an AT&T hit list. But uh, the reality of trying to conduct business within a fucking cell tower and have a functioning stereo. See, this is where I realize it's a trite issue. But I'm an obsessive idiot and I see injustice in mundane things. You know, God forbid I, I, I appeal to my, uh, my, my sense of injustice to bigger, broader issues and get out there and do some campaigning or some actual uh, selfless grassroots lobbying for the candidate of my choice. But no, I'm going to shake my fist at the great mythological god AT&T, who is a very real god, in the sense that they control a good deal of the communications for people in this world, their ability to text, send dick pics, and uh, avoid calls from their parents, occasionally uh, email, Wi-Fi, not benevolent, just there, competing with other cell phone and uh, phone companies. Wi-Fi as well. So not knowing that I was... Operating within a fucking cell tower, I was unable to use my stereo because of this horrendous buzz. Now, who knows? Just by talking about this, perhaps, look, I'll tell you this. If I have an aneurysm or some sort of psychotic break, they focused the laser and they twisted my fucking brain. And the, the fact of the matter is they don't even need to do that because... They've sent guys over. We've turned things off. We've uh, we've pinpointed that the buzz is directly related to the fact that I'm working inside a cell tower. They turned some shit off. The buzz went away. So it is completely relative to AT&T's equipment on my roof. So every time I go to my office to do a little work done, I'm like, maybe it's gone. I turn it on. No, not gone. And yesterday, not only was it not gone, it was fucking worse than it's ever been. And I'm like, I got to get out of the office. Not because I'm a fucking baby. Who, who wants to play his records just because I'm obsessive and I'm not going to be able to let it go. Because I think what most corporations want you to do is just admit defeat and move on, whether it's with a product, whether it's with anything. They're just, they're just playing the odds. You know, if they've got, you know, five pissed off people out of 100, fuck them. And that's with anything. So if one or two people get the bad pair of shoes or the shitty service or or hurt themselves badly in a car accident, can we fit it into our bottom line? Take care of this shit and just move on business as usual and shut that guy up. And, you know, I wish you know, I could get over it, but I can't because I'm obsessive and I want to enjoy 
my workspace and I want to work the way I want to work, I have the freedom to do that. No one's going to tell me to shut the fuck up and just, you know, forget about the music. And I've tried to tell myself that. Like, hey, is it really that important? You know what? It kind of is. It kind of is. But uh, but I, as I assumed, it's going to be some sort of very pathetic David and Goliath story where where David doesn't win. He just kind of goes like, eh, I guess I'll just take my rocks and go to some other space. You know? They just want you to just like live with it. It's just, and, and I think so many of us do that on so many levels. It's like, ah, this is the way it is. Fuck that. I'm either going to split or they're going to turn their shit off because it's fucking my head up. They don't even need to put the zap on my brain. They've already done it just by not fixing it because I'm an, I'm an obsessive idiot. So it's, it, it, it annoys me that my brain works like that. It really does. My guest right now is a guy I worked with. I did great comedy with. I have a lot of respect for. He's a funny kid. And uh, Josh Brenner's in a new film, Welcome to Happiness, that you can see in theaters now and video on demand. You can also see him as Big Head uh, on the uh, HBO show Silicon Valley. So this is me and my old buddy, Josh Brenner. No hard feelings. Man, I mean... No hard feelings. I, you know, we did what we could. We tried. It, we tried to get you on this last season. There's just no way. Can I tell you something? You were too essential to uh, Silicon Valley. <laughs> too essential. I mean, not only is my character not essential, I my I as a human am also... <laughs> dude, honest, honestly, my wife, yeah. like like two months ago, my wife was like, what's, what's wrong with you? Right. You're like... You're like bummed and you're like moping around. Yeah. I was like, I don't know. And she's like, oh, I know what it is. It's because you're not doing Marin. Oh. I swear. She she honestly said that. Because I had this, str- I think I texted you. I had this string of people coming up and being like, dude. <laughs> and I'd be like, oh, you watch Silicon Valley. And they're like, what? No. <laughs> like, Marin is my favorite show on TV. Oh. Like, honestly, like people, it was like the universe just like rubbing it in my face. Yeah. You know, you were always very good. And I, I had to just keep up with you in our scenes oh, on Marin. And <laughs> what? Give me a break. Solid. Always solid. Yeah. Ready for work. All you were doing. Uh huh. All you were doing was writing, directing, executive, right. producing. But I wanted to act. I wanted you want cameras. Yeah, but no one sees that shit. All they see is like, I don't know, Marin's like a little stiff, a little stiff. Give me a break. Well, let me, but what? seriously, I just told you this a minute ago, but I'm going to tell you it again. Right. This season, it's like. It's unbelievable. Like that's some heavy lifting you're Thanks, doing, man. and it's fucking. It's really good. I thank you. It's really good. I, I think I, I I stepped up to the plate. Yeah, and grand slam home run. Thank you very much. Sports. And you are doing a good job yourself on the Silicon Valley. I watched uh, one episode last night. And I just happened to be like full of you. That's rare. Yeah. <laughs> you really. I have, was, a, I have a friend who texts me after every episode I'm not in and says best episode yet of the season. <laughs> Every single one. Good friend. Yeah, he's awesome. How are your parents? The the lovely people that came to see me oh in Texas. Oh my god, that oh they love they love you. I swear. Like I talk to them once a week on Shabbos. Yeah. And it's like, how's Mark doing? I'm like, guys, I don't. I haven't seen Mark. They're like, they're like, do you know he was so nice to us? I was like, yeah, because I know because we've talked about it a lot of times now. They love you. They're good people. Yeah, I mean they're yeah they're the best. And you're yeah you're still vegetarian. Yeah. Wait. How did you know? Did I? Is that a thing we talked? Yeah. 
What, is that a thing? We talk, I worked with you for three years. Well, I didn't know I was so in your face about it. I try to, you know... Uh... Vegetarians, there's no subtlety to that. <laughs> Even when you're not trying to be in someone's face about it. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a slight... Uh, Superiority thing that happens that yeah. you you guys all disclaim. That no, is, no, you can... no. That is true. I am I am a hundred percent superior to everyone who eats meat. <laughs> That's a fact. That is a fact about me is that I'm better than people who eat meat. Right. Yeah. So if you're listening and you eat meat, I'm better than you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I get that, and I, I'm not I'm not sure I disagree. It's but it's you know it's it's however you want to live your life. If you don't know the joy of a good burger, that's that's no. I do. I do. Yeah. Because I, I wasn't always a vegetarian. And that makes me even more special. Sure. Is that I remember you it. the fight. I yeah. remember it. And I still say, you know what? I don't need that because I'm such a good person. Oh, okay. All yeah. right. So what was it? Was it, a, was it the animal screaming thing? Oh, man. It was, it was every... I, I, I grew up kosher. I was, I was raised in a kosher house. So, you know... That's got nothing to do with being a vegetarian. That's just weird. Well, the, yeah. What, well, this is, this is a fun thing. Two sets of utensils. This two is a, sets of cutting boards. This is the fun thing about my house is yeah. it was a kosher house. So, we had two sets of utensils. We yeah. had the dairy and we had the meat, but we also had a set of trafe silverware for when we had like takeout Chinese and that kind of thing. Oh, really? So, we were, you know, it was like very, very conservative and unless, you know, somebody that's needed weird. to have some like sweet and sour chicken. Right, but that's weird because my brother did that too. Not particularly religious, but kept kosher. Yeah, it's a weird thing. It's something about tradition and discipline and uh, I guess it's uh, godliness at all times, even when you're being ungodly. Like, you're assuming that God's not paying attention if you use the trafe silverware. They like, right. well, at least they're not using the the ordained or utensils. That's correct. Yeah, we're showing we're showing a sign of respect. You know, it's right? Like the and Shabbos nobody's perfect. Goy. No one's perfect. The Shabbos goy. The Shabbos goy. What is that? You know, so like I don't have to turn on the light switch on, right. on Shabbat. But I bring can... in a Shabbos goy and say and say, oh, it's dark in here. It's dark. Sure would be nice if the lights were on. And then that's code. Yeah. I'm not going to turn it on because yeah. you know I'm a good Jew. But that's right. The Shabbos goy. Yeah. And you know, then you go like, God, did you see that? No, no respect. I can't believe that no guy respect. just flipped the lights. He doesn't know any better. He's just a goy. You were that Shabbosy? No, 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 no. Oh, oh. No, no, but kosher, yes. I didn't realize you were that uh, that Jewy. Yeah, but pretty Jew. That's sweet of you to say. I mean, look at my face. But you're Texas Jew? <laughs> Texas Jew, yeah. Yeah. I've, Galveston I've, Project, motherfuckers. Yeah. <laughs> I've met <laughs> a few. Yeah, it's a, it's a weird breed. But the, here's the a, here's a thing that was interesting about you that and, and it's surprising that I didn't ultimately uh, you know resent you right out of working with me. <laughs> <laughs> but uh you know you, you you're a harvard guy oh yeah because don't don't you know well you know like people people don't like that no but you're Understand, different you're different see but see you don't you don't uh, you don't ride the same high ground with harvard as you do with uh vegetables oh you can't because people already assume it you know, vegetarianism is something we can all process. You know, we kind of get it, but Harvard is very exclusive, and you underplay that one. You're not going to shake, yeah. You're not going to shake the terribleness of no matter. Like I can make a joke about how being a vegetarian is a superpower, but whatever you do with Harvard, it's yeah. just going to it's, it's terrible. But you didn't study acting, right? There, you can't. You can't really, right? Because that wouldn't be serious. 
right. to study acting. What uh, was it, English, right? Yeah, I studied English. And, yeah. and then, but they, under the English program, you could take acting classes right. at the American Repertory Theater, which is like Down a, the street, yeah. Right across, yeah, right across the way. ART, so, yeah. ART, yeah. So and, I took classes there and did plays there and all that stuff. Oh, really? That's where you started at ART? Doing uh, like student plays or did you get into some bigger ones? Uh, I was never in like their like real deal productions, yeah. but they would ha- do cool stuff where like, you know, the staff from the ART, like the, and there's also a graduate MFA program there. They're teaching classes and they also like would do a visiting director project. So I was like in plays directed by like the real deal people from ART, which was amazing. Oh, yeah. It was really cool. Like who? Uh, this guy, Marcus Stern, mm-hmm. uh, who's awesome. And then uh, like Robert Woodruff taught a class. Oh, yeah. And, uh, 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 one of the guys who wrote, like, basically wrote practical aesthetics, like, wrote the book on, like, sort of, like, mammoth acting. Uh-huh. Scott Ziegler, he he taught stuff. You know, so, like, you know. Like, so, you got some real experience. Yeah, Just cool being, a, like, a, an extracurricular kind of thing. Yeah. Did you get credit for those classes? Yeah, the English department was, man, they were loose. fast and loose. Yeah, <laughs> it was like going to Brown in the English department. You could do whatever the fuck you wanted. So, you get, so you go to Harvard for English and then you're, like, you know, you know that acting's your thing, right? Yeah, I mean, I did like playwriting and stuff too, so I, I wanted to do oh yeah something. You got some plays? Uh, oh, that's a gener- that's a generous term. I did playwriting. I don't think I have plays. Did you write a play? Sure, you did. You finished one. I I wrote a play like for a, a one act? for a creative thesis. It's I mean for a thesis. Yeah, it, a creative thesis. What that's does that like, mean? Like if you were like wanted to say you wrote a thesis, but you didn't want to do all the work, you right. did a creative thesis and you like uh, wrote a play or a screenplay uh-huh. or you know something like oh, that. Oh, really? Yeah. But that's not the same as a thesis. I mean, I they just yeah, I guess it was still a thesis, but like they call it a creative thesis, so people know like oh, you didn't really do anything. You just like all right. There was no research involved. No, There's you no, like typed right. with one hand while you pleasured uh, yourself. Ah, you know? so but it, it still counts as the thesis. Yeah. And as an undergrad, you have to do a thesis? You don't have to. No, you can it's an opt-in system. Well, what is it what does it garner you? Why do it if you don't have to? See, that's the difference between Harvard and other schools is like you didn't have to do that, yet you did. Yeah, that's a great question. I actually like I just paused to be like, <laughs> what is the answer to that question? And then I was like, oh, I guess like everyone else is the answer, right? Oh, it's yeah, like people right? do that. There's just like, yeah, there's this like unbridled ambition and you just right. have to like be like, oh, oh wait, I don't have that. Am I Am I screwed up? Right. I better do it. Yeah, I should do something so that other people also think that I'm ambitious. Do you feel like you got a well-rounded education? Because that's the criticism these days, that it's so hyper-competitive and so business-driven and uh, so uh, sort of, um, you know, expecting uh, job placement and, you know, hyper-ambitious people that the the broad-based nature of the liberal arts education is lost. I drank a lot. (laughs) Is that... (laughs) Yeah, kind of. But did you drink a lot in the spirit of being like some irresponsible hero of some kind? No, just because it seemed fun. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like did I, you did you go out and mingle with the working class? No. <laughs> okay. So no. So everything they're saying is true. Heavens, about- no. Do you know how many steps it is down from the ivory tower to talk to the to Central to the, Square? To yeah, it's, it's one T stop. <laughs> I didn't go near the Hong Kong. goddammit. it, Middle <laughs> oh, the, East. That would oh the Middle East. Yeah, the Hong Kong is literally in Harvard Square. You can tell. And me, I still didn't go. You didn't go have a scorpion bowl with the Hong Kong. Oh, down. Yeah, I went downstairs. Oh. I didn't go upstairs where you the know there was interesting was? things happening. <laughs> right. Yeah, I stayed downstairs. The comedy with the scorpion union. Bowls. Was that what it's called? The comedy studio that was off limits. I don't remember what I lit. I literally never went, and then. Huh. And yeah, and then I moved out Insulated. here, and like all these Emerson guys were like, "Oh, you must have, like spend all your time at the." Yeah. And I was like, "No, yeah. I, that that was happening. That 
That seems really cool. So you moved out here right after undergrad with uh, with uh, with a creative thesis under your belt and some <laughs> some big ideas. Yeah, and people just you know started throwing paychecks at me. But where know? did you get your first break? Were you at UCB at all, or did you did you I, just audition? I did. I did UCB, but I, I, I just wasn't that good at it. Yeah, I, I still like really? marvel at those. I mean, I I loved it. I had so much fun doing it, but. And you know, I was like on teams that yeah. did shows. I met my wife doing that stuff. And, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't for the life of me figure out how to like get on a house team or right. Or, and I still like those guys that like uh, to me are like the, those are the guys that I, like you always talk about. Zach, like, like Zach Woods, like Zach, like yeah. watching Zach improvise. Right. Like, yeah. like he's a maestro. How'd you get the first acting gigs? How'd you get an agent through UCB? Uh, no, uh, nepotism. Oh, uh, really? My, uh, I moved out here. I was going to move to New York and do, and try to do theater. Right. That was always what I thought I would do. And yeah. Then, but my brother, my older brother, uh, Mark lived, uh, Mark with a C. Yeah. Uh, lived, was living out here. He'd been out here for a while and he's like, don't move to New York, dummy. Like I, you know, come mm -hmm. out here. And then he just had this great big group of friends, then all of them doing different stuff, and two of them happened to, to be agents, and I was like, hey, what do I do? And they are like, go to class. And they were like, okay, and now what do I do? And they were like, oh, like go go on this audition. And then they're like, whoa, that went pretty bad. Go to more class. And they sort of like- So they kind of, they sent you out? They held my hand, yeah. Right. They, they held my hand a little bit. Which classes so, did you do? Uh, I did UCB and I did Groundlings, so I did the improv thing, and then uh, I got involved at this place called Stan Kirsch Studios. Uh-huh. Uh, which is sort of an offspin of uh, the Leslie Kahn uh, mega star mm -hmm. um, thing. And uh, yeah, I spent a lot of time there and uh, I actually taught and coached there for a little while after I sort of like learned the thing a little bit. How old are you? Super old. How Thir old? 31. Hmm. That's good. Did a lot of shit. Yeah. yeah and I, tu you're lucky. I tutored and I bartended and you know, I did, right. all, I did all the things. But you're lucky because it sounds to me with your with your uh, your sort of um, sensitivity and your uh, your sort of um, neurosis. It's neurosis, but you're 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 pretty grounded, dude. But like it sounded like it it, could, it was close. You could you you could have ended up a teacher. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like you know what I mean. Like you're one of those dudes that like you know you like the process and you know a lot and you're pretty good with people. That like it sounded like his. Because that's one of the, the paths. There but for you go I, Mark. <laughs> yeah, Th but thanks for the job. You can always go back to that. Just know that. That you can always teach. Oh, I'm, I, I have one foot. Are you kidding me? Any minute, all, all of this is gone. <laughs> this is surreal. But like, this, like I mean, I just want to say this is crazy. Yeah. Like, this is a rite of passage, obviously, yeah. now. I yeah. mean, this is real. But, yeah. But also, like, my image of the garage is like the fake garage oh, right. <laughs> from the from show. the show. So yeah. like being in here, I'm like, uh, I'm like, oh, this is an interesting set. It sort of reminds me of what a real <laughs> yeah. garage is like. But like, the, like it's the I don't opposite. Know. Well, that's. I thought you'd come over here once. Maybe no. maybe like I'm, I'm confusing memories. Yeah, maybe it was all over. Invite at must the have other got lost house. in the mail. No, that's not it. It just I, at some point I thought that maybe we came up here. But it was all the my memories are confused as well. So the big head character just seems to be um, you not uh, like turning some things off that you turned on when you were doing my character. <laughs> when you're doing when you're playing Kyle, you're like full on, and then when they you know, big head, you're like I'm just going to turn Strip a couple knobs down. Up. That's really interesting. Yeah, it's like yeah, you're literally those are like the you're... opposite ends of the spectrum of where I can exist. Right, right, yeah. right. Yeah, you're just <laughs> shut down and detached, and you know, you, you your tone doesn't shift as much. But whereas you, when you were Kyle, you're just sort of like all over the place. 
I think that it's just uh, you bring it out in me. Yeah. You know, when we're together. I'm, That's right, you know. buddy. And how many episodes of uh, Silicon Valley did you do to be uh, not allowed to do my show? Oh. I, I guess I can frame that question how, uh, differently. <laughs> how many How many episodes are you in this season? Uh, the, I don't know. Six or maybe six or seven. Oh, that's like a lot. That. Okay. Yeah. So maybe you really didn't have time. I, I, pl- I plead. <laughs> so this now this movie. Yeah. Welcome to happiness. Welcome to happiness. Now you did, you know, you've done a couple movies. One where it was big, oh, hugely promoted and no one saw it. What yeah. was that called? Yeah. Uh, uh, I believe you're referring to the internship. Yeah. The internship. Not where... to be confused with the intern, which is the exact same movie. Uh, which but... did better or no? Uh, I think they both did pretty bad. <laughs> The internship, but there was a lot of post Josh Brenner images around town. Oh man, yeah, you couldn't. Yeah, it was like the first season of Marin. I'm like, I guess he's going to be okay. <laughs> I guess Kyle t- panned out for Kyle. Yeah, and then nothing. You know, yeah. How many movies did you do after that? Uh, just like in, in you know, most summers I'll do like a, a tiny indie or, uh-huh. or or two. You know, I I try to do stuff that won't come out. Um, as a general rule, I well, that's why I try to stay on networks and no one gets. <laughs> I think it's a real good call. I think you're smart. Oh man, stay... my my parents figuring out IFC for the first time. Uh, they're like, they're like, Josh, okay, we're just gonna go through the channel guide one by one together. Just stay on the phone. I had a hard time finding it because I wanted to watch in real time this season. It's like it's like thirteen hundred and something to get it. Like I just, but it's got such good stuff on it. I like, know that's it. It's crazy. I know it's a great like every like I was you know I watched the show and I'm like watching promos and like you know. Comedy Bang Bang, sure. documentary now. Like yeah. it's like Portlandia and Portlandia, the movies and yeah, it's great. Yeah, who knows? I don't I, know. It's, it's not. It's out. I I'm detached from that. The season is, by the way, like, I mean, I'm enjoy. I'm I'm enjoying it Thank more than you. ever because I hate I hate watching myself on TV. So this season is like a yeah, real breath free. of fresh air. Yeah. But also, it's like you guys are doing something different. Yeah. I mean, you. Is, I'm excited about it. You're Thank make, you. You're making like cool smart yeah. hard to watch independent films that are also funny and sweet well, thank I, you. I love it man it's i appreciate awesome. that it's so cool so tell me about this movie you're in because i didn't have time to watch it and i don't even think i got the right movie oh perfect yeah um everybody's doing a great job um <laughs> uh it's called it's called welcome to happiness and it's a uh, it's this first time director oliver thompson uh where's he come from what's his uh, he's a uh, pedigree He's a Detroit fellow. Oh, yeah? Big Detroit sports guy. Oh, okay. And uh, he's a musician, and he's a visual artist, and he's just like... Like, I'd never I'd never met a guy who, like, just knows all all the... You know, like, he's also, like, one of these guys that can sort of, like, talk about everything. Yeah. You know, he, he, like, you know, music, art, every everything. Yeah. And, like, he just had this vision, and... It's his you know, script? It's his script, and he directed it, and he sort of developed it with the one of the stars in the movie, Kyle Gallner, and, uh, you know, all it was just sort of this, like, group of people that I think just wanted to get together and be like, hey, let's make a movie. What's it about? It's about... It's sort of this magical realism thing. It's I mean, it's really about, you know, dealing with trauma and loss and, oh. and past, uh-huh. you know, things that have happened in your life that you can't change. Yeah. And it's sort of like, what if you could change them? And there's this magical oh. element, and, you know, what is... Who you, plays the magic person? Huh? Uh, it's, is it a doorway or a ring uh, or a fella? It's a doorway. <laughs> it's a, that's amazing that you just hit it. I was trying to come up with some joke about Aladdin and the lamp, and you just you nailed you just got it right. It is a doorway. It's a doorway. Yeah, it's a doorway. Man, that's gotta, so that's gotta so have reductive. Some device, you that's know, so reductive. Gonna... You walk in and Mark Maron just sizes up the whole freaking thing. We got to get somewhere we can fix the past. You got to. There's got to be some portal. Oh man, some, some way of entering. <laughs> <laughs> uh. 
it's actually very sweet, and uh, and you know, there's great people in it. And Nick Offerman's in it. It's good people. Brendan Sexton is in it, and uh, uh, maybe I'm Keegan just... Michael Key's in. It. Ah, I like him. Yeah, he's the man. Oh, Brendan Sexton. Yeah, I know that guy. He's freaking amazing. In he's the... really good. I like this guy a lot. We just went and saw my wife, and I just went and saw the movie. They had a little opening night thing. How was it? And we left, and and she goes, "Man, that Brendan. Wow." Yeah. And I said, "Yeah, anything else?" And she's like, "I mean, he's just like you watch him and." <laughs> He's just like you're just on the journey with him. Oh, okay, cool. And like what, like the rest of the movie was, yeah, man, really good performance. Oh, okay, cool. What about I love you too. me? I love you too. You're what st- about me? Is that what you said? Well, I didn't. I just let my face do the what about meing. Oh, I know this guy Kyle too. He's been in. Yeah, I told you. Yeah, I told you. You'd know who he was. Yeah. No, it's like it's like a really awesome cast, and and like I said, Oliver. Padgett and, Brewster's in it. She's good. Yes, and she's awesome in it. Everybody's awesome in it. Big cast. Big cast. Yeah, a lot of storylines. And uh, what it's going to open where? Everywhere. It's in. I mean, it's in town here. It's in good. North Hollywood at the good. Lamley, and it's like good. places, you know. But yeah, fine. Just Google so Lamley it. level movie. That's correct. That's good. That's where those your movies inflection start. was wrong though. You were supposed to go. Oh, it's a Lamley level movie. Oh, let me try it again. Yeah, that's good note though. <laughs> <laughs> it's oh, it's a Lamley level movie. Real perfect. Okay, that's, that's a great take. Print that one. Circle it. Thanks, man. Thanks for stopping by, buddy. This was so nice of you. I can't believe it. It's good to see you. Thanks, man. Not only is that kid a talented actor, uh, he's a decent guy. That doesn't always happen in show business. He's a good man, that Josh Brenner. I like that guy. So this was very exciting. Um, When I was in New York, I saw a lot of theater. A lot of you listen to the show know that I see theater uh, lately. I've been uh, encouraged and uh, given the opportunity uh, (laughs) and uh, taken care of, which I don't mind. But... um, Stephen Karam's play, The Humans, is now on Broadway at the Helen Hayes Theater. It's nominated for six Tony Awards, including Best Play. Now, this was a very intimate, very interesting, very real-feeling play about a family. It all takes place over the course of basically one Thanksgiving dinner uh, where a young couple uh, has the, um, the, the woman's parents over and her sister and uh, it sounds all very simple and it feels very simple, but it's very haunting and very uh, deep and very emotional and very funny. And uh, I have just really enjoyed going to see theater. And I, I'd like to make time to do more of that kind of stuff. Uh, just more stuff. You know, I, I, you know, we all know what the stuff we're supposed to do is and that it's supposed to be fun. But sometimes just the idea of getting there makes it a little tricky. But uh, I did go to see The Humans and I did have Stephen... Uh, Karim, come to my hotel room in New York City the last time I was there. We had a very nice conversation, as I recall. So this is me and uh, playwright uh, Stephen Karam. I think we need to open by uh, congratulating you on your Tony nomination. Thank you very much. I'm saying that just with, happened. Uh, yeah, it just happened. Yeah. Like an hour ago? Like an hour ago, yeah. So what were the phone calls rolling in? Scott Rudin, oh my God, <laughs> you deserve it. We knew it. Scott did call, yeah. <laughs> that was amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, agents, My, I just talked to my parents. Oh, you did? Yeah, they were watching um, uh, 
you know, it's all so silly, but my parents were watching, uh, I guess it was on CBS, uh-huh. you know, being, you know, of my generation, I was live streaming it yeah. like from the website, but they were watching, uh, I guess, Charlie Rose and that CBS morning show. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. And so my mom was most excited that there was a, like a passing comment that she overheard from Charlie about having seen the play or something to that effect. So that's Have what you, we just talked about. Oh, that's a, well, that's nice. They love yeah. Charlie Rose. Of course they do. Yeah. I was just there yesterday. Have you done it? Uh, I'm actually doing it t- uh, later this afternoon. Yeah. Oh, great. With the cast, with uh, Jane and, and Reed Bernie. Who play the parents? In the play humans. the parents and the humans and Joe Mantello, who, who directed it. So. Joe Mantello's been around for a while, right? Oh, yeah. Like, he's like the guy. Brilliant guy. I think it's a, I mean, it's a modern miracle that a play like this is even has made it to Broadway. Do you know what I, I mean? I know. I saw it. At, where did I see it? At no the celebrities. Uh, you saw it off-Broadway at the Roundabout Theater Company, yeah. So that that's a very intimate space. And, and, the, and the set itself is very intimate and, and, and kind of compartmentalized, specifically. Yeah. It's, it's big a, and small at the same time. It, yeah, it's, it's like a two-level set. Right. But yeah, it's, it's your classic New York... Duplex right. apartment, which means ultimately not very yeah the ground, bottom one ground yeah. floor basement right one window all very familiar to me all very familiar to me I mean that's that's pretty much a slightly adjusted version of my an apartment I lived in for six years yeah in, in New yeah. York and you just sit there and go like this is good for New York this is I, great I, it's only know, five thousand dollars what's so funny is is well it actually I it was a good price I was splitting it with someone else um, uh, and. Like the apartment in the play, it both they had their own entrances, like yeah. on both floors. Yeah. So it was the perfect uh, roommate apartment because we each had our own uh, bathroom too. Oh, that's good. But now but everyone do- seeing the play thinks, you know, like this is a terrible apartment, and I was so happy in that apartment. I couldn't believe that I could turn around. I had a I, this was my first <laughs> queen size bed. It looked like you had a kitchen. It did have a kitchen. Yeah, yeah. one that hadn't been renovated in about twenty twenty five years, but. Well, that's always the trick in New York is like, is it a kitchen or is it just a nook where there's a, a stove and no room to do nothing? I have exclusively had nooks. Yeah. To, to date. And you can't cook. Yeah. That, that's why New York yeah, is restaurants are like always popular and always have people eating at them. Even the worst ones is because no one looks at their kitchen in New York City and goes like, I'm going to cook in there. Right. Like it's got to be a real, you got to be sick yeah. or something to even make anything. It's yeah. a chore. But how does it, when, when you... What ha- well? Let's start at the beginning then. So you wrote a few. You wrote a few plays before this, before the humans. I did, yeah. But it looks like a couple of them you wrote in college. Um. Well, yeah. I mean, I'd been writing. I I wrote plays in college that I would probably not want to own necessarily. Maybe like the to- one that you did. But, but yeah, I started writing. I mean, I was even writing like sketches and things as a uh, like comedy sketches as a. a kid in high school like really as a teenager. yeah that's where it started that the 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 craving or the compulsion to write dialogue yeah i didn't know that it was um i wasn't pursuing writing as a profession then but i just you know i was growing up in scranton there wasn't a lot going on scranton scranton pa i don't even i don't have no point of reference for that other than the sign well you on probably the train do, right you know, so scranton's it, well it's the home of of the american version of the office yeah uh you know joe biden a yeah. lot of politicians have connections to Scranton, sure. so that's usually how people know it. Isn't that the the sign you see when you're taking the train? Is Scranton the 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 city oh, yeah. of industry or something, or the city? Well, it's of the Electric something? City, yeah, it's, yeah. Um, you know, but the you know Steam Town. The, it's right. all of its ties are to you know industry and yeah. and um, you know uh, 
trains and you know, that are no longer necessarily in right. service. So, but you know, my little mom, rusted out, little rusted out, little rusted out. You yeah. know, the heaps of the what do you call it? The 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 coal, the yeah. leftover, the sure uh, piles of coal. Yeah, the the big piles of black. Mounds yeah. of cool dirt. Yeah. The one thing I remember about Pennsylvania is if you have if you ever drove cross country, yeah, you, at some point you're like, holy shit, Pennsylvania is huge. Yeah, yeah. People <laughs> yeah. are always like, I have a friend in Pittsburgh. They don't realize that Pittsburgh to Scranton is about you know maybe eight hours or something. So what? Why were you there? What, what did you were about to say about your mother? Well, I grew up. Uh, why was I in Pennsylvania? Yeah. Well, that's where I was born and raised. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, I know, but what, what? What, why were your parents in Pennsylvania? What? Oh, you mean what, how did they end up there? Yeah, um, that's where they were born. My, my dad's side of the family is really fascinating. It's it's uh, so I'm half Lebanese, half Irish. My dad's dad, my grandfather, um, was born in Lebanon. Came here when he was about 25. Uh, died speaking only broken English when my dad was 17. But my dad's one of ten. Wow, he's nine of ten. So the you know my oldest uncle. Um, who's passed away recently, he, uh, he sort of like the godfather of the family and right. kind of like my grandfather. Yeah. Um, you know, he was born in Lebanon too. So it's, it's, it almost feels like it's one of those families where via my aunts and uncles, there's like multiple generations, even in one yeah. uh, family unit because there are 10 of them. Right. So the age gap is pretty, you know, big. And you're growing up in this sort of... Uh, and know, they came here because of the Maronite... A parish, you know, there was a, a Lebanese American community Maronite. here in, yeah, it's sort of the the uh, Lebanese version of Roman Catholicism. I know, it's exactly way. spelled like my name, Maronite. It actually is. Yeah, people take pictures of those churches sometimes <laughs> and send them to me and go like, you have a following. <laughs> Let me know if you ever get St. Anne's uh, Maronite in Scranton. That's. I, I, don't remember, I don't know if I took a picture of that one. Where did I see one? Maybe... Uh, Detroit has a population of a lot of, uh, but you grew up in, in like with this side of the family that it was exotic by American standards. I would say like at least with, uh, with customs and traditions and cuisine. Yeah. You're going to church and, and yeah, the, our fathers and Aramaic and there's this, but at the same time, uh, what's funny about Scranton is I, maybe it's because I was part of such a close knit family. It didn't feel weird. Yeah. Um, as I got older, I started to feel maybe a little, um, aware of how maybe uncool it felt you know when you're becoming at an age where you're like oh maybe this is weird that yeah. you know the the parish that i belong to and um the customs and everything but scranton is also kind of just a hodgepodge of so many different um ethnicities uh, ethnicities and churches everywhere that um you know in some in some ways i felt i felt weirder being like a gay kid than i did being um a maronite yeah. christian <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I guess one trumps the other. Yeah. Like uh, there, there's a, a certain level of tolerance for ethnicity differences, but there can be a, a blanket intolerance for, for gayness. Yeah. And Scranton's so weird because it's like two, it's so close to New York City, right? Yeah. It's like two and a half hours. Oh, that doesn't matter. But yeah. it was just, it was like the, the, especially the time, like I just missed the cutoff. There was no like gay straight alliance. Um, and there's no oh, like. Just before everything started sort of. A little, yeah, just, just kind of just missed that that wave. And it's it's just, you know, there's no Amtrak to get into New York City. So so people in Scranton really don't take advantage of the city. People um, on Long Island don't, buddy. Okay, so that's good to know. I <laughs> thought that was a Scranton thing. Oh, no, no, no. You, you go out on the island, they're like, nah, we don't go to Manhattan. <laughs> Because when I got booked to do shows on Long Island, I'm like, aren't they just going to come to my New York City show? And they're like, no. They're totally separate audience. Kind of. Yeah. What business was your dad in? My dad 
Are you ready for this? He was the high school principal of my public school, of the public school I attended. Uh-huh. So he was a history teacher turned uh, vice principal. And then for the last God, 15, 20 years of his career, he was a, a principal. He was the principal. Yeah, of my uh, so public you went to high school with your dad and a big public high school too. Oh, so that's a rough gig. Yeah, it was. It was. It it's wasn't like the easiest. Being a warden. <laughs> you know what's funny is kids just say stuff to you like, like your dad just gave me detention. You know, yeah. and they'd like you know slam Take your locker. You. Yeah, yeah. So it was a lot of stuff like that. I wasn't actually ever um, answering for the the sins of your father. Well, it's yeah, and you can't really say anything to it. So I kind of just kept my head down and yeah. my sister was older than me she was four years older it was just two and, of you? uh three of us yeah and she was a lot cooler than i was yeah um so i think she in some ways probably helped pave the way she was a senior when i was a freshman and so there was a kind of um i think maybe enough people knew her that people just left me alone a little yeah, bit. yeah 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 but that is a strange experience yeah um, you know so when you started uh, did you start doing theater in high school I did, yeah. I uh, didn't always get cast in the shows, but I was, uh, yeah, in a production of The Music Man. I did. I was a uh, co-sound Man. chair for our production of Count Dracula. Uh-huh. Um, so you were a theater guy. I was a theater guy. I also did, uh, even nerdier than being a theater guy, I did speech and debate. Uh-huh. Are you aware of what that is? I, I know about it, and I, it's one of those things where whenever I talk to somebody who had experience with uh, speech and debate, that I'd like to know the, um, the tactics of it. Well, like, there's all these different... I think you'd actually be really good at it. I feel like um, people who can do stand-up comedy... I mean, the bravery that it takes to do stand-up comedy, especially, I feel like you're yeah, but perfectly like, poised for success. Yeah, but I, everything <laughs> becomes very personal to me. As soon as I feel yeah. that I'm losing an argument, it, it becomes like, you know, fuck you, you're stupid. I think that would make you a really exciting <laughs> Lincoln Douglas debater, actually. Well, you did a play called Speech and Debate about about I did. That was yeah. one of my first, yeah. Uh about uh about high school kids. About high school kids struggling yeah. with things. Struggling with, with issues and things. So <laughs> it was a comedy. But when were you when were you um like comfortably gay? I mean, did that happen in high school? I mean, or were you one of those sort of like um hiding in the theater? Uh, department kind of like not quite out people i was i was pretty much one of those hiding in the department the theater department but i also was one of those weirdos who um was sort of just asexual before i came i wasn't right. I, didn't, I didn't have this trail of girlfriends yeah right, right. yeah i did not break a lot of hearts okay so um you know i was the kid that was taking his best female friends to all of the dances in the proms and right you can just right. follow like a slew of pictures sure. of me with you know yeah. my best girlfriends right. and then and then, yeah, I came out to one close friend in college when I was like 18. Uh-huh. And then I came out to my family and uh, pretty much everyone later when I was 20 or 21. How'd they handle it? Shockingly well, actually. And I think part of it was because um, my parents really did know me, yeah, as right. did my friends. Right. And again, a little mysterious when you make it to 21 without... Um, without coming out without a lot of sexual conquests or even like yeah. I have a crush on this you know yeah so I don't think I was uh, 
I don't think I was shocking anyone. Yeah, you know? they're, they're, I had also sung like a Miss Saigon song when I was 14 in a talent show. So I feel like I was paving the way <laughs> they all from knew. very early on. Finally, they were like, finally. Yeah. Uh, we can all relax. I feel like in college, that was the reaction. Yeah. And strangely from Scranton, you know, you do realize that because, you know, my parents didn't have gay friends or there was no real visibility of a, a community, of, of or, a gay community yeah. that a lot of people did just think that I was... Um, a straight kid who was into musical theater and right. the only gay song was you know? the theater department at your high school. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and I found it <laughs> good. And it wasn't that dangerous, you know, and it wasn't, you know, it was nice. We, uh, you know, everyone felt well supported. Of course, you know, yeah. you can be your weirdo self and, yeah, yeah. and, uh, so when did you start the the writing? When did that feel like you said you started in high school writing sketches, but what inspired you to do that? I mean, just other stuff that made me laugh. I mean, I actually remember just loving a lot of even... Um, I did discover plays in high school, and uh, I'd seen Little Shop of Horrors when I was in first grade. My sister was in a, a production at North Scranton Intermediate School. Um, so I was kind of vaguely aware that there was this thing called, called theater. theater. Um, but really, it was even... I mean, I remember writing sketches after watching uh sherry o'terry and will ferrell right do stuff that just really made me laugh on saturday night live uh-huh. um and fooling around in my basement with my friend kim and you know writing sketches for class day and yeah. stuff um but in terms of like you know we read the crucible in high school and i kind of started to got, get jazzed as to like uh just what was out there so i started reading a lot of plays and then i started imitating a lot of the Every writer that would come along that would kind of blow my mind, I, I would sort of do the classic. You write like them for a while. Yeah, embarrassing imitation of, yeah. Of, yeah. And that's part of uh, a speech and debate, right? Don't they do a, a, a version of The Crucible? Or they, they do, actually. <laughs> the One of the girls, she writes a, yeah, a pop musical version of The Crucible. <laughs> Told from the perspective of so Mary you, Warren, one of the the girls who who was a what a bully or she's kind of the bully. Right, she's so you you're per, you're exercising your demons of style. Uh, exactly. But the the thing that fascinates me about theater and the thing that like you know, as somebody who is relatively sophisticated and understands you know why theater should be important and wondering whether or not it is as important as it was or was it ever really. Is that I, I finally realized the day before yesterday is that you know New York is theater in yeah. a lot of ways, and that you know whether anybody goes to see the theater or not, if a play becomes successful, it has a, a resonance throughout the culture. It may take time and it may take different forms, but it starts a dialogue you know in a lot of different other forms. Is I think that, that's right. Yeah. yeah, but but it seems to me that that people like you and Annie and Lynn. You know, that there's a generation of people that is, you know, whether um, intentionally or not, you know, making theater accessible to a, a generation of people that may have not necessarily dismissed it, but not thought it was part of their lives. Yeah. I mean, I think part of every generation is, you know, writers are trying to put things on stage that that mean something to them or the kind of plays that uh, that they'd want to see. So, um because that's, that's what I think we do. You know, I don't think it's a conscious choice of trying to be, um, to necessarily like bring it, bring a new wave of theater to a generation as we're all just, you know, where we're at in our lives. And, and you are the generation. And if you can get them to come, great. And if, exactly. And they seem to be coming. 
Yeah, I, I mean, mean, all you can do is put. I mean, it's probably where your your stand up comes from too. Is just it's like you can only talk about the stuff that's on your mind that's, and that's right. keeping you up at night, and yeah. and and hope that that maybe other people are are thinking about those things too. Right? Well, I'm, well, I'm fortunate in that you know I'm emotionally uh, somewhat stunted, <laughs> and you know I'm a 52 year old man twice divorced with no kids and a fairly infantile emotional structure. So, like, fortunately for me that when my success, you know, actually started happening in my late 40s that, you know, I was uh, you, you, just as appealing to 45-year-olds as I was to 15-year-olds <laughs> who were having emotional problems. There's a, there's a continuity there. You know, there's a... There's it's a, a huge market. Well, I mean, yeah, I'm on a... I'm People, on, human beings with emotional problems yeah, is, yeah. yeah, I think it's also why theater it's exists. A, it's a big too. spectrum. It's a big spectrum. But uh, so when did you, but even the decision that, you know, it seems to me that, you know, when you talk about for whatever reason you were, you know, interested in theater in high school or, or you found a sort of community in that, that as it became more sophisticated and as you get older, you know, that community has a different depth to it and a different intensity to it. But you still felt that, you know, this was a world that, you know, your creativity could, could thrive in and that you wanted to live in. Yeah, so when did you know that? It was such a slow process. I mean, the truth is, I, I, you know, I come from a family where there are no uh, artists or people making their living as an artist. Right. So I, it was not only, it wasn't like I graduated from college and thought I'd become a playwright. Right. It was really just, I was so drawn to theater that I kept doing it in college. I kept writing. I graduated. You kept acting or, or just writing? I did act in college, but college is where I started acting less and, and writing more. And when, um, when you I had a lot of stage fright, so it was actually yeah, um, it was it was clear to me that I was not going to have uh, a career as an actor. But it's good that you got up there so you could understand you oh, know what man. it feels like to be up there as a as a director and as a writer. Hands down, it's it's made me to this day. I think it's the best writer training I've had was was just having been in a lot of plays, right? Even completely uh, amateurish, you know, college yeah, yeah, theater. Sure. It's just it's. I think it's the best preparation. I'm I'm astonished anytime a writer says that they haven't been on that side because I think it instantly makes you a better writer when you know what it is to have to make sense of someone else's words. Yeah, and take the risks that are necessary. And take those risks. Yeah. You you just have a better understanding not only of what you're asking of actors but um uh it just it you've just worn the other hat. So Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It just yeah. So when you were in college, I imagine that, you, you know, outside of what you experienced in high school and seeing musicals or being in musicals and, and doing, you know, that level of theater that or even seeing a, a version of the or, a, you know, a, 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 what's the word I want? Uh, the, a play done play. amateurly. Sure. You know, like a big play. There must have been a moment where you saw something in a real theater production that, that made you go like, holy fuck, that the power of that is, is very specific. You, you it's know. interesting. I, it, it was not, there wasn't a lightning flash moment like that, only because I remember being obsessed with The Glass Menagerie because we had read it and I had seen a production uh, at Scranton Public Theater. Yeah. But those moments of like feelings of electricity really came from reading a lot of plays, which I know is is weird. I have a hard but time. But my first it. my first theater experiences, professional theater experiences, were where the Scranton High School uh, uh, different clubs wouldn't get on the bus to see a, a big Broadway musical. So my first show was Phantom of the Opera, my uh -huh. first Broadway show. Um, so it wasn't that those experiences weren't amazing for me. They were. It was just I, I didn't walk out of Phantom of the Opera being like. Um, 
I've got to write another, you know, Phantom of the Opera. I've got to create something as, uh, I've got to create a heroine as, as potent as Christine Daae. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, so, so it was, it was really like, uh, a slow burn in terms of, of discovering like at the drama book shop, like my mom would take me in and we get, I'd have, you know, X amount of dollars to buy these acting editions yeah. that were really cheap. Um, so a lot of the, the first kind of thrill of what theater could be was like reading, you know, a play like angels in America, as opposed to seeing, it. yeah, being like 15 and, and having seen, that's know, interesting. So you, you, the, the first kind of resonating experience was to see the words. Yeah, and because and because my can, first professional productions were like fifteen years into the runs of these mega musicals, so it was right. like you know people were like you know essentially like out to lunch during the you know sure. I saw it was one production of Miss Saigon, it was a matinee, and you could tell the poor actors were just like done. They were just done. They were like, <laughs> like we have to do this again at eight o'clock. This is like we have to go back to Ho Chi Minh City. It's just the whole <laughs> yeah. Saigon's gonna fall again. Yeah, you know, yeah, later yeah. tonight. Here and, we go. Yeah. Yeah, uh, well, there is something funny about that that element of theater. Like, even like, because I went, I went to see Hamilton last night, and then I went backstage, and they were just sort of like, "Hey, what's going on?" I'm like, "Are you guys okay?" <laughs> you know, like there's part of me that's sort of like, yeah. you need to sit down for a yeah. minute." But do you sense how they're kind of wired? To, like, I feel like post show, even when you're doing oh, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. even if you're doing long days journey into night, right? Yeah, there's a kind of uh, it's hard to sleep. After. Oh yeah, no. Even after a big comedy performance, you're kind of you're looped. You're just so kind of you know, yeah. lit. Yeah, yeah. I get it's it. It's that kind of thing. But you mentioned like Long Day's Journey into Night, like you know, because I after watching the humans and after thinking about it and after seeing you know Louis, Horace, and Pete, which I think you know for all practical purposes is is theater. That it seems that the 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 line between tragedy and comedy in in contemporary theater, which with my experience of it, is basically you and Annie. Is uh, in some ways, which yeah. is very contemporary. You're both, you know, uh, you were up for a Pulitzer. You just got nominated for Tony for best play. I mean, you're, this is real shit here. <laughs> so, but when you think about Long Day's Journey in, in, in Night, and you think about those generational familial, you know, tragedies that are 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 purely, you, you know, you're going into darkness in in a way that you may not recover from. Well, what's structurally? I, yeah, I mean, I didn't, I did not approach this play from that place. No, I know I, that. That's yeah. what's so interesting is I thought I was writing a psychological thriller but, or a pure genre kind of. A, I, but I don't think it is a tragedy in the same way, or even can be categorized like that. That's why I'm sort of curious about, you know, transcending these forms. That there is yeah. this area, you know, between you know, very specifically comedy and very specifically dark, between dark and light. Yeah, yeah. that, but doesn't you know, doesn't sort of you'll move towards death. Yeah. I mean, it, it does metaphorically on some level, like anything does. Sure. But yet, you know, at the end of the humans, y- you know, they're... A measure of hope. There's a measure of hope, and it and is... a moment of grace. And it is literal darkness. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And you don't really know what it means, but it can suggest a lot of things, but, you know, no one's going down for the count. Right. But, but it ends with a moment of grace. I mean... Right. Yeah. Because I, I imagine that when you do a family... Uh, drama like that, you know, the the sort of specter of O'Neill is is always sort of there, right? In a way, sure. And all all the great yeah uh, American Family plays are there, but that's why I, I feel lucky that what are I don't think I would have start. I don't think I would have written it if I was thinking uh, if I was approaching the play uh, thinking of that kind of canon. Right. You know what I mean? I don't think any writer would. Um, well, what those are some plays of the other are untouchable. Ones in your mind? 
Oh, well, Long Day's Journey. Right. Uh, uh, Death of a Salesman. Right. Arthur Miller. Yeah. Uh, the Glass Menagerie. Right. Uh, Raisin in the Sun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the list goes on and on. Sure. Um, you can you can sort of chart an interesting line of, you know, but from as one you, to the next. But as you evolve through your first few, you know, published plays, I have to assume that there was a learning curve there for you. Oh, huge. And there still is. I still yeah, feel like, I, you know, I finished The Humans and... Um, it's never that you want to disown your past work, but, right. but you know how it goes. It's uh, especially move. being a young writer. Yeah, from speech and debate to Sons of the Prophet to the Humans, there's a huge learning curve, and so it's it's kind of like looking at um, school pictures. Yeah, you want to move past it. You want to move past it, but you also don't want to you don't want to mess with them. It's like let let you don't want to like take the braces off of the photo or the bad haircut. It's just it's who you, it's a reflection of who you were. Um, at the time, which is actually in some ways kind of makes them uh, perfect in their imperfections. You know, if you, if I went back to try to fix my older plays, um, I think I'd damage them in some, in some way, even more, you know, in my attempt to fix them. Does that make sense? Yeah. Have you seen, uh, different productions of your older plays? I mean, I have seen a few productions of them, but I also try to, support them from afar with love and you know sometimes i feel like i am a bit of a control freak so i like to either be totally involved meaning let me be involved in casting and uh uh, see talk with being able to talk with the designers and have a relationship with the director and if i can't have that part of me is just you know happy to know that the show is going to open in detroit in this production and i can wish i can wish it well from from afar. Right. And it's not because I think they are, are going to quote unquote mess it up. It's just, um, it's out of your hands. It's out of your hands. Yeah. And so in some ways I feel like the experience that other people would have watching it, um, is the right experience. And mine would be so warped by, you know, I, my experience of just showing up on yeah. opening night would be like, why Wait. did they? Yeah. yeah can I wh- talk to you for costume? Me? Shouldn't be. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's overacting. <laughs> What's happening? Why is she crying so much? You know, <laughs> Um, you know, all the things you can do when you're actually involved in a rehearsal process. Right. So, But it's interesting, as a writer, do you, do you think that somebody can discover things within your work that you might not have seen? And- yeah, I think that's why I'm a player. I mean, I'm, there's nothing more exhilarating than, than, you know, I mean, than when somebody, the idea that somebody years from now can take your work and reinvent it, um, or that even like a high school kid's, um, uh, amateur productions can find um, a spark or a life or an angle or something about it that, you know, based on the the timing of when they do it and who those human beings are that are bringing it to life yeah. and putting on those roles. I mean, there's nothing like that, that, you know, it exists as literature, but really it can be, it can be rediscovered again and again and again. Yeah. So you went to Brown? I went to Brown. How was that experience? That's like the, the, was- the sort of groovy Ivy League school, right? Yeah, I mean, it was weird. No one from my high school had ever gone there. And yeah. so it wasn't even a, I was so, you know, I was crazy anxious to get out of Scranton. And yeah. so um, I was just that kid that was just ready to had enough go of see the world. Coal piles? Uh, well, <laughs> a little bit. And so I had like, you know, no one had even read my application. I researched all the schools that I wanted to, you know, and, but people weren't even, 
you know, no one, no one thought it was like a good thing that I was going to Brown. They thought it was like a two year, like VCR repair, you know, program or something. It was basically like, what even is Brown? Brown. And then I went to Brown and, you know, there were all these people who were surprised I hadn't heard of their high schools, which I thought was fascinating. It was a whole like cultural education. Oh, the, in the, world. Yeah, the sort of like preschool nurse. People you know, who had been to like, um, I even forget the names of it, but you know, like uh, 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 the the school in in D.C. You know, my roommate had gone to where you know he was in school with like the presidents, the vice yeah. Al Gore's sure. kids, and yeah, um, and oh, people yeah, you, were like, you don't know about you know this school or this school, and I didn't. I just thought it was so weird that people that anyone would be expected to know of someone's high school. Well, there's a whole like my buddy Sam, the Sam Lipside. He's a novelist. You know, he's got kids, and you got to start thinking about that shit when they go to kindergarten. Like you know, when you grow up and you go to public school, it's it's and it's never even a thought of it's right. like, well, of course you're gonna you go to yeah, you go to the elementary school that's near you, yeah, in the public school, and then that's you go near to you. you go to East Grand Intermediate School yeah. and you go to Scranton High School. It's like what's <laughs> and then you go to you know you come to New York and it's a whole oh yeah, people are moving and they're like paying like you know forty fifty thousand dollars a year to for, for elementary school, school education yeah. and you know. Uh, just so mind blowing to me. So for me, college was both. Brown was incredible, um, and it's it's sort of where I feel like I came into my own. But I also I feel like I was just doing a lot of growing up. I was a Type A, you know, good student. But I also and I was a little scared of my creative side. So it was kind of great to be in a place that um, it was really you had really easy access to, you know, even like mounting your own production, student run sure. theater, yeah. and kids. I'm talking like kids from the you know computer science department were doing theater everybody was kind of um uh it did have a really kind of exciting artistic vibe what chris do you mean? hayes msnbc chris hayes we were doing theater together at brown and 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 lynn too and well no lynn manuel was at wesleyan because i know oh him and uh chris they went to high, high school, school together, together. That's yeah right. Which is amazing. It's weird how Chris Hayes plays into this weird kind of young theater world. Chris you know Hayes that? is changing the face of American theater. Right. Yeah. It's, it's very curious to me that like, cause I think he really wants to like, I think there, he might do it eventually. He was, he was a great director. I remember him. He directed a, a student written musical in high school. He, even then he had a kind of, he had what it took to be a good director. Like everybody trusted him. Yeah. Great personality. And he's I mean? a very empathetic sort. Completely empathetic, yeah. which is what you need. You right. Know? So but you I actually hope he did. That would be amazing if he actually did come back to the theater world. It would be great. Yeah. You're the guy to bring him back. <laughs> you and Lynn, bring Chris Hayes back to the director's chair. So what do you mean you were scared of your creative side? Um, I mean, I don't know what your situation was, how you got, you know, into the... Uh, into the arts, but I feel like I was so practical about how would I, how would I earn a living? Yeah. You know, I feel like um, I came from a family where, uh, you know, we were sort of very careful with like spending and stuff. And so it also felt like I felt a, a, a real panic about um, how would I even continue to pursue this in any way, in any legitimate way. And, you know, I ended up just moving here and getting, a job as a paralegal um, and working for oh, like eight or nine years in that capacity while I continued to write. I opened my first few plays and just went back to work the next day because I, I just needed that. I mean, I wish I had a, a stability, the idea a badass of story. Yeah. I actually needed security and knowing that I could, I would have health insurance and rent money to be able to be wild and creative and free um, 
in my writing. It's interesting. That that there, there are fewer and fewer badass stories. Are as, there? As generally, generationally. Yeah. But yeah, because, you know, no one's fucking around as much as they used to. Do you, you know what I mean? You, you better be you better be showing up for work yeah. and capable of doing the job. You know, there's the, the, the capacity for, for producers, I think, and, and, and for audiences to tolerate, you, you know, yeah. the badass story has, has become limited because the, the cultural lexicon of when someone's fucked up is right. like, you know, well, this is too bad. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? It's not like, yeah, man, he's out there. Or like, you know, like, yeah. or you get these playwright stories like he's drinking himself to death, but he's doing these great things. It's like, I don't think anyone gives a fuck about that anymore. And they're just sort of like, well, good luck. You know, that's I mean, funny. it happens subversively and sadly now, you yeah. know, a lot of that yeah. stuff happens behind closed doors and people are shocked when they hear about it. But you know, in the seventies when Sam Shepard and Patti Smith were running around doing whatever the hell they were doing, they were like, fuck yeah, rock and roll. I don't, I, I think it's a much more professional environment in some ways. Yeah. Do you think social media has kind of ruined that too? Like there I is think, no uh, social media, if not, I think, it's created a consciousness about it because it is, you know, I read the Lar, John Lar wrote this incredible biography of Tennessee Williams. Yeah. And, and you know, Kazan has an amazing autobiography, but you read, you read, you read like those accounts of those artistic lives and it does feel badass and um, amazingly scary and wild in a way that, that, that does seem rare. I mean, now that you're saying that I'm. Yeah. I think that something has happened. I think that, but that They're, stuff wasn't in the spotlight like while it was happening is I guess what I'm saying. The, const, the, the constant uh, surveillance by passersby, the, the inability to have any, you know, real private life. You know, yeah. like I imagine, you know, if there was more than three people hanging around Tennessee Williams, one of them would be tweeting about the party. Totally. So, well, even this feels like really exposing. I mean, because part of me is like I write plays like that. My plays feel about as personal as I want to get in terms of sharing yeah, info about my like emotional landscape or what's going on. So even this feels really bizarre, right? Well, this is a little it's long form. I I, I think that <laughs> you know what I mean. This is yeah. not not some quick hit. And I think that there were times where these type of conversations were had. Yeah. And I and I think they were had with people like Tennessee Williams. I think that you you know not to compare myself, but Studs Terkel and and people who were felt to be chronicling you know the the emotional and creative. Uh, ebbs and flows of, of, of artists, you know, was around. And I think this is old style. I don't yeah. know if it was ever done specifically like this, but I think that the attention span to take something like this in and process it is relatively new again, unfortunately. Yeah. But I think just getting back to the badass, you know, stories is that when you really, when you read those biographies, don't, don't you have that moment where you're like, that not only were they geniuses, but they had some physical perseverance and, 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 uh, uh, tolerance that seems almost inhuman. Absolutely. I mean, when you yeah. hear about like Tennessee Williams or even about, you know, the, the British actors who are shit faced, you know, all the fucking time. Yeah. Could you even imagine, you know, yourself like at one of your plays, you know, your lead actor is just like drunk again. Yeah. You know, what, you yeah. know, what would you do? You'd be like, we got to replace that guy. I, absolutely. <laughs> Me, especially Mark. <laughs> Fired. <laughs> there's enough drama. There's enough drama that goes on in mounting an original play that I can't even imagine. But, but if you had a producer yeah. who said, uh, "Yeah, I don't know. Maybe you think twice about this. He's going to bring people in, you know, and, and he'll hit not. He'll hit eight of out course. of ten. Eight out of ten, of course. And if it's especially if it's Scott Rudin saying that to you, you know, oh, you, you got to trust you. You do it, and you know, it's funny. The Glass Menagerie story. One of them. I think it almost it's it sort of frames the narrative around it. Yeah. Uh, in the Lar biography is. 
I believe uh, the actress who played Amanda Wingfield, I forget her name now, um, uh, if she's famous. Anyway, she, I believe she puked in the wings, uh-huh. like before she was so nervous. You hear these stories and I'm like, I can't imagine getting a rehearsal report that's like, you know, Jane Howdy Shell, you know, drinking, puking in the wings before, <laughs> but you know, right before first entrance. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I honestly think I would have to just leave the city until the run was over because I wouldn't know where to put the anxiety and the stress that would come from like yeah. show to show. You're nervous enough. Well, theater is so that's what makes it so so magic is that you never know what's going to happen every time the cast steps out on the stage. Every show's a little different and a little, you know, so it's always a tightrope walk. But you add that element of like a drug problem yeah. or is this person going to show up, you know, semi-conscious <laughs> that's then you're really then you're really going out on the deep end you well know? i think at that time the entire community was living on the edge a little like that yeah. that they were insulated in their way of life which is not really possible now yeah and uh everybody was sort of in on it like yeah. you know i think that that it had to have been like a lot of times that the 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 celebration at the end of the show was like we we made it through right you and, know I mean? and like the culture around drinking was also different or the consciousness about something maybe sure. about alcoholism I mean it seems like the envelope was before somebody was like you have a serious drinking problem right it seemed to exist a lot a lot of leeway seemed to exist that's right between yeah. well well there's a well, and I wonder how that's like you sort of changed I I I do think that because of expectations and because of of things needing to be to be new and 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 you know sort of immediately powerful, uh, that you know people have become very jaded, especially with content and with things, and you, you know like and especially when they hear hype about things, they they really want it to live up to to everything. Everybody is has this weird sense of broad entitlement, you know that it, there's no real tolerance. For Tell them. me about it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, said the guy who was nominated for a Pulitzer and now now nominated for a no. I just mean I just mean that's I feel like every anybody who makes anything has that experience. Oh yeah. Even when it goes really well and and you feel like you've you've had the dream experience, you realize then the the um, if there can be said to be a downside to any form of of success, and of course it's it's relative, so it's not actually a downside. It's all just it's like the best problem in the world. Is that when when people go to see something that they're told is great, they are going with their own creating their own expectations and baggage and 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 if it doesn't actually line up to their what they what they're bringing what they had decided it was going to be before they saw it yeah suddenly a play that they might have liked if they had just discovered it becomes like this is not as good as right death of a salesman and it's like well the play's ambition was not to (laughs) be a competent to be reality show competition you know (laughs) yeah yeah and you got to put that stuff out of your head it's not on oh, you. Of course, yeah. It's it's not your job. It's your job is to just you know try to tell the truth. So, yeah. Well, walk me through that a little bit. In that you know the play, the humans, and the creation of it. You know that you know what you've woven into this thing. You know, it's sort of the the cute um, kind of new uh, couple experience of you know getting sure. this new apartment. Yeah. And, you know, the sort of strains of being a, a young couple and what one's going to do and what the other's doing. And then the parents come in. And then the, then all of a sudden there's there's you know, a very definitive 9-11 specter hanging over it. And then there's, you know, there there is a, a, a gay, not not gay struggle element, but a gay character that has a, a, a personal struggle that is, you know, it, it, it's not uh, deadly, but it's concerning and, and a, sure. a bit embarrassing. And then you have... You know these parents, uh, the the mother who sort of you know a, a kind of like uh, 
you know, fully, you know, kind of uh, engaged and overbearing uh, religious denial person who does charitable things. <laughs> sure, right? sure. I'm just trying to remember. Yeah, and then you you're have actually the, doing a good job. Yeah. The matriarch who is completely uh, Alzheimer'd. Yeah. And, and impulsive uh, without any control of, of what yeah. she's contributing to the event. You're depressing me just, just saying all these things. <laughs> no, and then you, you have this uh, sort of father who you know is trying to to be uh, be, be strong, but is is carrying his own burden of uh, you know a financial burden and a personal burden. And to me, they actually seem like a a, a relatively stable family in some ways too, which but is I, what I think. What's what's I think that's what's point. weird and strange and. Uh, maybe the interesting counter to everything that you just said, which is true. Like the, all those problems do exist in and, all but, their lives. But the but counter to it is that there's love there. I think they're an oddly functional family for oh, all of their dysfunction, you know? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, I like, think part of me was interested in exploring like the existential horrors of what felt like a very ordinary and loving family. Right. As opposed to like, uh, maybe the the big issue being like would would they act, would these people actually kill each other by the end of the night or uh you know hurl pieces of furniture at each other it, it's it's i think it's less about questioning their let's say like uh unconditional love for each other and i think the play is more fascinated in the ways each of them are coping or let's say not coping so well with these basement level fears basement level where where we're at well and they are they they are are literally they're literally stuck in the basement yeah but it's this apartment but it's nice i i maintain that that is an amazing apartment and i (laughs) i feel like i get embarrassed every time i i confess this but i mark there's a lot of space in that apartment i'm with you queen size bed you can fit a queen size bed in that alcove yeah no i i think it's a great apartment i think spiral staircases are are great as you know i didn't have any like art to put on the walls and so for me i even thought that was like a beautiful piece Piece of sculpture yeah yeah no i I, put lights on it in christmas time i like the apartment but did you just now you couldn't have just made that connection between basement level problems and the basement level set i think my subconscious made the connection uh-huh i mean now i'm making the connection yeah no but i mean i'm, I'm always thinking of it as as like like what's in the basement fears. Well, yeah that, like what's I, in the basement but i like that because that's like you know when i'm growing up or when you, i don't know what kind of house you grew up in but like yeah. my grandmother's house had this basement that was terrifying yeah yeah there's boxes what of basements things. aren't terrifying right. i mean i guess some people have finished basements and but there is like i didn't just realize that there was like the basement went into this other back room that I'm like, I'm not going in there. And there's nothing in there. It's yeah. just a room with shelves. And like, and then you'd go in there and there'd be like three weird old pictures just laying on a shelf. And oh, like, totally. And and genuine, like like spiders do amazing work in basements. Like oh, my LA, basement, they do amazing work everywhere. Do they? yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, my basement, there would there would be just extraordinary like cobwebs and, um, you know, because it just wasn't lived in. It wasn't finished. And even just the smell of like you know when you feel like the concrete floor and the. But but you weren't but that aware in constructing the play of what happened on the upper level and what happened on the lower level. I think something interesting happened to me by living in a place that was literally below ground for six years, um, where you actually were looking outside and couldn't tell even on a sunny day was it was it sunny was yeah. it cloudy was it. Um, I think something did seep in in terms of uh, storing away that it. it something about that setting did feel really spectacular because it both felt utterly naturalistic and like my favorite kind of set pieces that 
that element of not knowing what's outside or having knowing there's a whole world out there, but actually not being able to access any of it, just yeah. seeing a brick wall. And um, it felt that felt very uh, meta and numinous and kind of like the thing that theater could exploit in a really quiet way. Yeah. Like just having, you know, around David's inset, it's, it's just voided. It's just black. It's yeah. not the, the set with like the hints of the Lower East Side around right, and the right. signs of Chinatown. And I think that works a kind of quiet magic on... That, those are the things that I don't expect an audience to process in right. any conscious way. But I do think that theater can, um, you know, normally I'm a, I'm a fan of n- non-realistic sets because I think those really do glean yeah. the cosmos right. in a kind of amazing way. But I feel like you can also, there's something I, I was excited about with this play, to play with real architecture that slowly got voided. It sort of starts in, in a very bizarre white void creamy white yeah like pre-war what you know the way yeah. they slab white paint on everything sure. yeah and slowly as the lights go out you actually do get back to a kind of a black stage um, oh yeah this again this is this is how i was thinking about stuff and dreaming about the play it's not anything that i think um it's anyone what, should be noting or a conscious no, but, 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 but this is like the the evolution of the discovery of you you know in your creative process that yeah. like because the more i talk to writers that you know where do you start, you know, like you said, that you, you know, when we talked about the subconscious, that, you know, what are the seeds for something like the humans? Because the humans are very disarming, very intimate, and very, you know, uh, there's a lot of, it, it, I don't want to say humanity, but it, there, you walk into a situation, I think almost anybody, you, you know, whether it's from their past or their kids' past, where you're like, you're familiar with this. You know, right away, you're like... Oh, these people are our neighbors or these people that's that, you know, you, you're familiar with, there's no sort of like, what the fuck is happening here right. until things move on. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's sort of like disarming and almost like, you know, it's almost organic that you, you, you know, that you feel like you're eavesdropping on, 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 you know, what is this first meeting of, uh, or maybe the first, is it the first meeting of the, the kid, the, the boyfriend or. It is, I think that they, she had set up one really stealth New York City drive-by where right. she conveniently was like, we don't have time for lunch, but this is, here yeah. he is. And, yeah. you know, and this is the first, yeah, sit down experience where they actually get to spend time Where together. the family meets the new yeah. guy. Yeah. So where does the creative process start for you in making the play? Like what was the, what was that I mean, seed? This particular play, uh, it took a lot of twists and turns. It started for me just, I was thinking a lot about fear and anxiety uh-huh. and I was thinking about the things that were keeping me up at night and Which that sort of what? well that led me to this you know I tend to do a lot of reading then when I can't access what yeah. I'm trying to so I started to like uh, trying to read up about fear and anxiety and I read accounts of like Lorca wrote this extraordinary um, uh, poetry when he was in New York City after the 1929 stock market crash and he just you know saw downtown Manhattan in this completely new way and Um, I started to become obsessed with the, uh, just thinking about the big existential fears that everybody has, our fear of poverty, our fear of ill health, our fear of losing the love of somebody, fear of death, our fear of failure and criticism. And I mean, gradually, uh, I took those fears and kind of built a family around them. Uh Literally kind of almost assigning, that was the very, very starting point, thinking about you know, a character who really would be struggling with this fear of criticism or failure, a, fa- a character who's struggling with uh, uh, ill health, a yeah. character who's struggling with 
you know, the older sister in the play just out of an eight year relationship. Right. Um, losing the love of someone. Right. Right. Um, so I sort of built it almost mis- murder mystery style. And then like the one of, with a, a, probably some sort of PTSD around, you know, 9-11, which is something completely sure. added. Anyway, it's one of those fears where it's sort of like, when's that going to happen? Sure. And post-financial crisis. I mean, money anxiety yeah. is dripping right. all over the play. Right. Um, I don't think there's a sense, like, I think every other sentence has some hint of, you know, even if the mother's just talking about the price of a candle and it all seems, seems ca- casual. I, so think, these, I think the fear of poverty is really hovering over the play and um and then i just thought if I, i'm obsessing so much about fear what if i could find a way to tell the story via a, a, a story that's actually a little scary um and that's when i started to think about the psychological thriller genre and the horror genre and i think what ended up happening is the um the play is now a genre collision it's both drawing on the traditional family play and it's completely smashed into this other genre that I that I love which um, is which is the horror genre I mean literally at the end there's they're, they're all quiet nods but I mean you know Reed Bernie is literally going up a dark staircase with yeah. a lantern and yeah. it's sort of the 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 weird homage to the moment of like a Wes Craven movie where the beautiful girl is going up the stairs and you're like don't yeah. don't answer the phone you know just and, and also so like, it's not it's not literally that moment but but I, it, but when I think of how the play works, um, I sort of see those moments. Again, this isn't something that I think and, and, right. anyone else is thinking about. Right, but you know where you were coming from. Yeah, I think, I think it's interesting to talk about dread in a play that conjures it. Sure. The kind of dread that and, it's and, trying to explore. And I think that what's interesting is that the, you know, the world you created, specifically in, in, in infusing financial fear throughout all of it, it's, it's an interesting thing in that you know, the class of people that yeah. that go to theater casually, yeah. Uh, you know, like if, if if a character in the play that you wrote were to go see Phantom, it would be a big deal. Yeah, you know, like you huge know. deal, right? So there there's something about the 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 sort of like maybe not complete lack of familiarity, but lack of of lifestyle of of many of the audience that is going to be entering this, and so like whether or not they completely identify with that particular fear. Because they probably have people working for them, not unlike the people in your play. Right. That all the other sort of existential anxieties that all of us have, yeah. you know, are, are, are present and, and it becomes a, a full organism, uh, you know, dealing with that dread. Yeah. So it, it's completely, you know, relatable. And I, I like that, that, that something like your show would force, you know, somebody who lives on the Upper East Side to sort of like, you know, you know humanize themselves yeah. in a way. You know, and, and realize that no matter what level of existence you're at, that this shit is happening. And I like the idea of, now that you brought up the lantern is that, yeah, it is equally as horrifying as to not knowing, you know, what killer is at the top of the stairs when that killer is just really the next day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, how are we going to... Life is terrifying. I mean, that's... I think I think the play, I, I feel like it... it it acknowledges that life is scary and terrifying and horrifying, but it's also hilarious and exhilarating right. and joyful. And um, and there's not a character in it that you don't uh, you know, empathize with and and relate to, and you know even you know at whatever their transgressions are, you know whether they be emotional or actual, uh, where you're like, yeah, I, 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 that's happened. Well, that's great. No, that makes me very happy because I do think at the end of the day, I feel like people are so resilient. 
And I think that's, I think people are astonishing in how funny they are in the midst of these uh, anxieties and how resilient. And so it's, it's certainly not to, it meant to be a, a, let's look at the horrors of this group of people and all like wallow in sadness. It's kind of like, and part of me thinks it's like stepping back and saying, look at how amazing people are. Like, look at what we do, even in these, you know, right. Look at how we cling to each other and look at the ways we cope and get through and everybody has these things. You're not, you know, like none of this stuff is, you know, no one killed somebody. Nobody killed somebody. And even the, you know, even the illness in the play is yeah, it's like, manageable. you know, she's, yeah, it's not stage four stomach cancer. Right. It's, 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 it, it's something, the, these are things that, you know, in some form or another, everybody deals with and, you know, and life gives you, it's part of life. There's no avoiding any of it. I think so. And maybe you haven't encountered all of these fears just yet, but I do think by the time you know we all oh, hit no, the grave, it's, it's like people. I think that is the 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 whole trick of it is that you know the language is so organic and it's not elevated in terms of like what theater you know sometimes is to the point where it's alienating. It actually goes the other way. Yeah, and and then it brings people in through the basement, you know, <laughs> as, as opposed yeah. to sort of like, wow, look at the lights, what's <laughs> happening, you know. <laughs> now, in the process of creating this, how much do you? you know how do you workshop something when it's not complete and 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 how do you start to trim these things to 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 where they're you know minimal and and exactly what you want i don't i don't know that experience as a as a writer but i imagine you get a, a draft and do you work scenes do you have people read it out loud do you yeah it depends this play it took me a while to figure out so i i sort of kept it close to home and i i tend to write a lot of drafts before i show it to anyone um, and then when I get a draft that I think where I think I know what the thing is and I'm ready for other people to start offering their their thoughts, um, the first step for me is just actors just sit around a table with actors. They're the best. That's the best editing comes from hearing good actors read uh-huh. your work, seeing how they f- sound in a mouth. Yeah, I think I think for me, the just hearing it out loud, your next draft is then I mean, that's that's the biggest round of changes because you can learn so much from, from listening to people start to try and make sense of your work. And when you say that you're most personal, like as we're having this conversation, you know, we're, we're not crying. We're okay. So if you're not crying, if, if, if it's, it's I did cry when I saw the view from the bathtub, though, (laughs) you want this, you want to live here. I want to live here. (laughs) But when you, when you say that, that you're most personal on, on, you know, through the work, you know what in that play you know uh out of all of it um did you feel that you were able to to find some catharsis personally you know emotionally i feel like the big secret is when you write a family play everybody wants to know um is that your sister is that literally your mother is that literally your father did this literally happen and for me you can be so much more truthful when you hide behind a shield of fiction and you can also split your personality i think people underestimate how 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 many of the characters are often um the writer right uh, and i've talked to other you know friends and colleagues who've, who've said the same thing where it's like the big secret is actually that i'm there's a lot of me in a lot of these characters sure uh instead of the very neat answer which is like that's my grandmother that's my no right uh, yeah obviously right and also with these characters if you can find a delicate and organic way to do it they they can they can engage and and confess and admit 
and struggle in a way that you know goes unspoken. Totally. In most families, like you, yeah. you know, you were talking about the tears of relationships in the play, and yeah. I think that was completely subconscious. When I stood back, I actually, and I first saw the play in a, a production in Chicago where it had its world premiere. I was, I kind of for the first time in a preview, I was like, I think I wrote a play about me trying to make sense of relationships because you have the couple who's been together for 40 years trying to keep it together. You have the young couple who's just made the leap to move in together. Right. And you have Amy in the middle who's just trying to figure out if she made a huge error and where she's going after a breakup from a long-term relationship. So you're seeing the start of something, the end of something and the consequences of maybe what it means to love someone for 40 years and how scary that can be. But I, I did think it was hilarious. And I did think it was emotionally you know, compelling and moving and, and completely engaging. And, and like, But that is a, a weird line that I don't know has always existed, this line in theater and in on television where, where all of a sudden you know, there was these two things. Is it, is it a drama or is it a comedy? Right for years it was well, like did, where did that come from? I yeah. don't know. I think I don't it know came either. from television. Yeah, uh, you know that was a way of marketing things. It's yeah. like oh I get it. You know they needed to be pitched and packaged in a line. Yeah, but now almost everything you know uh, is able to contain contain both. Yeah, yeah, it, which is a which is more like life. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting to see even in TV that because there are the, the categories in a lot of these award shows and stuff where it's like best drama and, and right. comedy and yeah. I do think it's interesting that theater doesn't separate those two that's great that's where Um, the honesty of theater comes in and and it's also like and i'm just excited for you i'm excited for you know for everybody because like i'm i'm new to this and i you know the more i talk to theater people it's like you know there's a whole history to this thing sure new york theater yeah it's always been you know relevant to the people that are involved (laughs) in it and on a business level there may have been dark times where they're like how the fuck are we going to get people to come (laughs) but you know like not unlike uh you know like you were saying before about you know uh, social media and the lack of intimacy and also the lack of expression and the inability of people to talk even on the phone now yeah that there is a, a craving for for the intensity of of connection yeah and I think that and the communal know. experience of sitting down next yeah. to other people, watching live, right. you know, people, right? You know, yeah, and seeing them spit, and, yeah. There's yeah. no replacing it. Well, it was great, and uh, congratulations on your Tony nomination. Happy and, to be here, thanks. And uh, the uh, the the Pulitzer nomination must have been must have been exciting. Oh, super exciting! And yeah. I actually know, um, you know, Brandon, who's another finalist, and Lynn, who yeah. won, who won this year, are are both friends. So it was kind of that's kind of an amazing year. So the but, the, the community actually functions as a community. There, as, there really is a theater community. Yeah, I'm yeah. starting to feel it more and more the more yeah. I'm a part of it. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's that's that's actually not a myth. And moving to Broadway, I mean, how is that decided? I mean, I know Scott's your producer, but like, <sighs> what is the business side of that? The business side of it is that Scott Rudin saw a matinee right before we opened, about a week before we opened, and um, I was told a day or two later that he was interested in moving the show as is uh, to Broadway, and um, it still feels surreal. I mean, if I'm being honest, it still feels like if I, anytime I'm I'm at the theater, I can't believe the show is is actually across from Phantom of the Opera uh, on 44th (laughs) Street. And that's a product of of Scott actually caring about the American theater. And because it's slightly unprecedented that a show without celebrities, a playwright who's not a celebrity and a title that isn't, you know, a known title of a play um, would have a commercial production on Broadway. So 
I don't, I still have kind of I'm kicking myself. Yeah. Um, it's, it's pretty fresh, right? Yeah. How I don't think this is going to, I mean, I honestly feel like this is going to uh, once in a lifetime kind of a thing. Don't. Well, okay, fine. There's no, that. I'm not saying it's all downhill from there. I'm just saying that, that, you know, writers of my generation, we don't see Broadway as the end game right. because it's actually, in some ways it's such a fantasy especially you if you want control feel that it has specific requirements it might come with specific requirements maybe ditching the actor you really want for mm-hmm. a tv star uh-huh. um uh or just the sheer sometimes the tv star is the right actor for your play and you right. would love to get that film star who loves to do theater but you know you end up might have to wait around for like two years for their schedule to clear up and mm-hmm. so i feel like my generation we do like creating theater off broadway and and living there because uh it's reasonable it's reasonable and you know you have control <laughs> of your comedy and it's yeah. like it's it's it it you can get to the finish line knowing that it's what you wanted it to be yeah and, it's and a, i feel like broadway that feels like a more of a fantasy that you get you get to make the thing on your own terms and then someone will actually believe in it enough and you've to got move that, it right and in this case yeah and Scott Rudin was like the the fairy yeah. godfather. Yeah, and know? why don't we why don't we give some love to the cast? Who, who played the parents? So the parents are played by the incredible Jane Howdy Shell and Reed Burney. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cassie Beck plays the older sister. Mm-hmm. Sarah Steele, who a lot of people know from The Good Wife, is the younger daughter. Uh, her boyfriend is Arian Moyed, um, and Lauren Klein is astonishing as the demented grandmother. Ah, amazing. Um, Real, like, you know, just... You actually don't even know that she's... I mean, people t- touch her after the show. To make sure. To make sure she's okay. And, uh-huh. Um, you know, she said it's both what's hard about doing that, which I can only imagine how hard it is, is sort of made up by the fact that, you know, after the show, she says she can... It's like being reborn because she goes to that place of not being able to connect oh my and God. being so shut down. And then she takes a curtain call and she can talk she can move around she can exercise she can call people she loves yeah 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 oh my so that must be a trip for her yeah well thanks for talking to me hey good to be here oh my god that was great can I, can I, I could probably write a play, right? That, you know, sometimes I, I used to think that more when, whenever I talk to people. I'm like, why can't I do that? Well, it's not what you chose to do with your life. Sure, you could write one, but I mean, yeah, kind of you know, handle your expectations. Maybe I'll play some guitar. How would that be? I think I got a lick. I'm going to put my earplugs in, though, because I have to put my earplugs in to get the right tone without losing my hearing.